everyone. This is Jasmine Singer, the executive director, co-founder, and co-host of Our Hen House, a media hub producing podcasts that change the world for animals. I am so pleased to welcome you to the third episode of the four-part audio series of the book, Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation. It was a true honor to be the editor of this new anthology published by Lantern Media, and a true joy to work alongside Encompass, in particular, Ariana Spurdy and Michelle Rojas Soto on bringing this book to creation. Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation is a collection of essays written by farmed animal protection advocates who are committed to exploring and prioritizing racial equity as we work to create a more just animal protection movement. We wish to document our stories and processes in an exploratory space from which we can grow and use our words to hold ourselves and our peers accountable, ultimately creating new paths forward. Those of us who contributed to this anthology were attendees of Encompass's two 2020 Racial Equity Institutes. Encompass, the nonprofit that organized the institutes, aims to make the farmed animal protection space more effective by working with white folks to operationalize racial equity, as well as by working with individual advocates of the global majority to cultivate our individual and our collective leadership. This anthology was originally an online collaboration between Encompass, Our Henhouse, and Sentient Media, and it was titled Encompass Essays Pursuing Racial Equity in Animal Advocacy. For citations of any of these essays, please visit the online version found at sentientmedia.org. Sentient Media is a robust digital platform that publishes thoughtful articles about animal agriculture and its impact on the world. You can purchase the hard copy of Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation, wherever books are sold. Or you can find out more at encompassmovement.org slash book. Oh, and if you haven't already, don't forget to go back to the first episode so you can hear our glossary of terms. It might help you as you're listening to the rest of this book. We are so pleased to present the third episode of the four-part audio series of the book, Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation. Hi, I'm Ariana Spurdy, founder and executive director of Encompass. At Encompass, we're making the farmed animal protection movement more effective by fostering racial diversity, equity, and inclusion so that everyone can bring 100% of their brilliance to work for animals. Join us at encompassmovement.org or on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Encompass, M-V-M-T, short for movement. Thanks so much. Episode three, accountability. The beauty of anti-racism is that you don't have to pretend to be free of racism to be an anti-racist. Anti-racism is the commitment to fight racism wherever you find it, including in yourself. And it's the only way forward. Ijeoma Oluo. In this section, we will hear from the following three essay authors, and these are their brief bios. Kaylin Labarge. She, her, is co-founder of Strategies for Ethical and Environmental Development, SEED, 
a nonprofit organization focused on dismantling capital-intensive industrial animal agriculture and advocating for a just transition that is fair and sustainable for animals, people, and the planet. Dana McFall, she, her, is a lawyer, humane educator, anti-racism activist, and animal advocate who has led an Institute for Humane Education alumni working group examining racial justice and white supremacy issues since 2017. Brooke Haggerty, she, her, is a lifelong animal advocate and is currently the executive director for Faunalytics, a nonprofit that provides research and resources to help advocates maximize their effectiveness to reduce animal suffering. Now let's get to the episode. My name is Kaylin Labarge, and the title of my essay is How Confronting My White Privilege is Making Me a Better Animal Activist. When I was 16, a few months after getting my driver's license, my stepdad let me drive his swanky company car home from vacation with two of my friends while he and my mom stayed on for a few days. Being 16 and generally immature and reckless, It wasn't long into my ride when I got pulled over for doing 112 in a 55 mile per hour zone on the Mass Pike. And because I was driving so dangerously fast, the car was impounded, which meant we had to go to the police station and wait there for someone to pick us up. On the way to the police station, the white officer called my mom on speakerphone. When mom realized what had happened, she started screaming at me so aggressively that the officer hung up on her. I remember him laughing and saying something about how awful it must be to have such a mother. It was not. He wanted me to feel like he was on my side. He was. Despite looking older than my 16 years, and the very real fact that I had placed the lives of my friends and other innocent people in danger, I was treated with friendliness and paternal protection by the officers. I don't even remember being worried that I may be arrested or detained. When we arrived at the station, the officers made sure we had water and snacks. Beyond being ashamed and nervous, I was otherwise fine. We even joked a bit with the police officers, developing a friendly rapport under a very odd circumstance. Now imagine a 16-year-old black boy and his two friends in the same situation. Three black boys in a luxury car would be viewed by the police as inherently suspicious, and the situation could have easily escalated, potentially even ending in deadly violence. I, like many other white children, was shielded from the most severe consequences of mistakes throughout my youth. But Black, Indigenous, and people of the global majority, by PGM, are robbed of their childhood by a society that insists they navigate the world as responsible adults well before they reach the age of maturity. Even then, this unfair adultification of Black children does not protect them from the disproportionate risk of being jailed, assaulted, or murdered. More often than not, The trajectory of our childhood is written for us before we are even born. Whiteness and otherization. At birth, white people slip into the comfort of established global systems that prioritize them and label blackness, brownness, or indigenousness as the other. This central fallacy allows white people to disengage from discussions about race because it's not our race that's the issue. In reality, the opposite is true. While the example I shared above is indeed about race, It's not about the imaginary boy's blackness. It's about my whiteness and how that kept me safe from harm and continues to keep me safe, employed, insured, and overall incredibly privileged. Oppression is like a quilt overlapping society. 
There may be rips and holes in small places, but the mechanisms of power suffocate the agency out of as many individuals as possible. As an animal activist and in-house counsel representing farmed animal protection nonprofits, I've become intimate with the ways in which our society exploits non-humans and their defenders. I've seen companies push back against public call-outs for corporate malfeasance and have witnessed the police accost my fellow activists for engaging in protected speech. The goal is always maintenance of the status quo. White supremacist culture operates similarly, and all it requires is for white people to find comfort in the status quo. Whiteness does not like to be named because it is used to being invisible, the norm, and centered on how we talk, think, and treat each other. But until we name our whiteness and understand its role in shaping our sense of self, until we see our whiteness as the central theme of our lives, we'll forever show up to the conversation entirely missing the point. When we don't talk about our advantages, our privileges, it's impossible to own it. So I'm going to talk about it. Here's a personal and incomplete account of 22 ways my whiteness has advantaged me and shaped my life. As a white woman working within the animal rights movement, I'm surrounded by people who look just like me. I'm healthy in no small part because I'm not exposed to the physical and mental stress of institutionalized and individual racism, including but not limited to environmental pollution and lack of access to nutrition and healthcare that BIPGM disproportionately endure on a daily basis. I am propelled forward in life because of my skin color, because I was born into a family that has always had financial security and the means to live a comfortable life, and because my family's access to resources has enabled my success and has generally protected me from professional failures. I have the luxury of working full-time for animals, a cause I'm passionate about and that doesn't pay as well as many other sectors, without having to worry about impacts on my quality of life or on my credit score and without the stress of underemployment that pervades and destroys the lives and livelihoods of millions of BIPGM. I have witnessed workplace discrimination and racial microaggressions by nonprofit leadership against BIPGM, and have simultaneously experienced completely different treatment by those same people, often those in leadership roles. I can take a stand for BIPGM friends without destroying my career or professional reputation, and my choice to do so will not endanger my safety or well-being. I can show up to workplaces without having to adapt my natural appearance to be viewed as professional. While I am a woman and therefore may be subject to income inequality as compared to white men in similar employment positions, my whiteness protects me from the much more significant income disparities that disadvantage BIPGM women. I am unlikely to experience bankruptcy, even in the face of a catastrophic accident. I also know I have a safety net, should something life-altering happen. I've never been turned away from a housing opportunity. I've never been followed around a store. People in positions of power assume the best of me. Nobody crosses the street as I approach them. When I tell people I'm a lawyer, no one acts surprised. No one looks at me and assumes that I'm living off the system, though, ironically, as a beneficiary of the many advantages laid out in this list and more, that's precisely what I've been doing all my life. I get to operate within and throughout the world without giving a second thought to my personal safety in almost every context. In the rare moments I've had to summon the police or first responders, once as a teenager when there was a break-in in my house, and later when a family member was having a medical emergency, it never once occurred to me that the authorities might suspect, hurt, or kill me. These days, when I get pulled over while driving, I may experience a bit of anxiety, but it stems from the general feeling of being in trouble, and not from the valid fear that I might be shot dead in my car or unlawfully detained because my very existence is viewed as suspicious. If I were to be arrested, 
my access to resources and people in positions of power would insulate me from the worst possible consequences. If I were to experience debilitating mental illness, I would receive attentive psychological treatment. Not only is such treatment readily available to me and those in my community, but my vulnerability would not be criminalized. I've never had to suffer the trauma of visiting an incarcerated family member in prison. Everyone I meet assumes that I'm from here and I generally welcomed wherever I choose to go. I move in and out of different social and professional situations without worry when I'm engaging or not engaging in conversations about race. I get to stop thinking about race whenever it's inconvenient. And for the vast majority of my life, I have unwittingly taken advantage of that. There are myriad additional ways to describe how my life and well-being is protected and enhanced by my whiteness, but you get the idea. Upholding the system. Now try to imagine a life where the opposite is true in every way. Like many white people, I'm just beginning to open my eyes, not only to the exhaustion of being oppressed by the system daily, but to the compounding and insidious effects of this oppression upon the lives of BIPGM. And like many white people, but certainly not nearly enough white people, I'm also confronting the stark reality that I have upheld this system with seemingly casual indifference, lack of introspection, and at times, fragility. This reality can be especially harsh for those of us who have identified ourselves as part of the animal rights movement, a movement we consider an important form of social justice advocacy for a long time. Not coincidentally, I get to write essays like this one as I clumsily add my historically absent voice to the many that are now speaking up about racism and white supremacy. This speaking up doesn't jeopardize my safety, and I'm even sometimes praised for speaking up. No one ever caustically refers to me as an angry white woman. Of course, you can be white and struggle in both small and large ways, but a white person will not experience hardship or adversity simply because of their skin color. The fact that I can float through life with such little adversity is the very point of white supremacy and systemic racism, institutions that operate to reserve the majority of the world's resources for white people. White privilege is generational wealth. White privilege is the relative ease of accumulating education, wealth, access, and power as a white person. This is what white people need to be talking about. And yet instead, we're too often in tone policing conversations about what BIPGM have or have not done, such as the ways in which an individual black woman may speak about racism, too angrily for white people's own comfort, and whether it makes white people feel validated and welcomed or challenged and upset. We have a habit of centering the response to oppression over the violence of the oppression itself. When we wring our hands at reports of property damage in connection with protests against police brutality, we both downplay the centuries of extreme violence to people at the heart of the protests and pivot our attention away from it entirely. We are centering the property, a manufactured legal concept meant to uphold white structures and perpetuate the accumulation and retention of resources by white people, instead of listening to the protesters' messages and trying to understand why that property is the target of centuries of frustration. Instead of these asinine loop-de-loops that never get to the heart of the matter, let us instead focus on what we as white people have done, not done, or continuously allowed to be done to perpetuate systems of violence against BIPGM because it directly benefits us. When white people renounce our accountability for correcting the harms perpetrated upon BIPGM by our ancestors, we're confusing a basic duty to pursue and uphold equity within our communities with our subjective feelings of guilt and shame. The expectation that we should proactively work to mend the destruction caused by centuries of white supremacy does not perpetuate some injustice upon white people. 
It is simply an acknowledgement of our responsibility to return what was never rightfully ours to those from whom it was stolen. Confronting my difficult truths. During almost all of my 37 years, it never really occurred to me that I was racist. Such a biting term, racist, for white progressives. Yet, that's exactly what I was, because I was brought up in a racist society. I wasn't doing much of anything to challenge white supremacy in my own life. I thought the goal was to be non-racist, to not see race. But I've since learned that being non-racist is the same as being racist. It's not doing anything to challenge white supremacy and structural racism, including when they show up within the animal rights space. The goal is racial equity and racial justice, and the only path there requires ongoing anti-racist work. I'm still learning about how white supremacy shows up in my daily life, and I'm constantly discovering new ways to confront my white privilege. I'm sometimes doing the wrong things, and overall stumbling through this process of incorporating anti-racism and the fight against the systemic oppression of BIPGM into my activism in life. But every day that I continue to reassess my actions, I solidify a path of continued growth and improvement. I know I'll make mistakes and that I'll be uncomfortable, but I'm committed to continuing on. Here's a personal account of 13 ways I've started to make racial equity work central to my anti-racism, both personally and professionally. I am challenging racist statements on social media. I am protesting for Black Lives Matter, BLM, and spending my time and resources supporting the structural changes they are striving for. I'm shifting my attention to Black, Brown, and Indigenous voices and perspectives in activism, art, and life by exploring new perspectives in literature, film, and on social media, and by confronting the disproportionate whiteness of my personal relationships. I am prioritizing my support for Black-owned businesses over white ones. I am redistributing my wealth by supporting BIPGM individuals and organizations financially. I'm talking to my white friends and family about whiteness and white supremacist culture. I am centering civil and human rights in my animal rights activism and committing strategies for ethical and environmental development, SEED, the animal and environmental protection organization I co-founded, to position racial equity as a central part of its culture and operations. I am prioritizing BIPGM for SEED's board, executive leadership, and staff roles. I'm prioritizing programmatic work in support of food justice and food sovereignty, and centering the elevation and protection of BIPGM and Global South communities in our initiatives. I'm challenging the animal rights movement's historical reliance on individual prosecutions in furtherance of progress for animals, and vocalizing the inherent failure of relying on a racist and oppressive criminal justice system to achieve social progress for animals, and I'm committed to helping find a better way forward. I am speaking out when I notice whiteness being centered in public narratives. I have and will continue attending educational workshops such as Encompass's Racial Equity Institute, encouraging others to attend and talking about my learnings with friends and family. I'm writing this essay and starting these conversations. While I'm taking the above actions, I am simultaneously doing the long overdue internal work and engaging in the radical self-reflection necessary to ensure that these actions are rooted in honesty and not performative anti-racism. Putting anti-racism to action. Too often, knowing what to do, how to do it, and how much to engage as a white person as an animal activist can be confusing. Does it appear from the list that I'm doing a lot? I'm not, but it might seem like it compared to my history of doing almost nothing. Even so, the above actions have collectively taken up a relatively small fraction of my time, energy, and attention in the past few months. I've barely scratched the surface, 
and I am still living squarely within the bubble of privilege. That bubble will follow me everywhere I go. What is it about this comfort that is so intoxicating? How have we created comfort for ourselves as white activists while denying it to our BIPGM colleagues, all while expecting them to keep showing up? As animal activists, we've committed ourselves to tackling injustice, and we push the public to change. Yet many of us who are white have operated with a sense of ideologic self-righteousness for so long that we're unable to see our own oppressive roles. I can identify with this. White people have enabled racist ideology in our animal activism via our silence, and even promoted it through our acceptance of the benefits of that silence. Or the unabashed resistance to and public devaluing of Encompass's urgently necessary work within the farmed animal rights space on social media, such as the threat of comments under one of Encompass's posts on the Effective Animal Advocacy Discussion Facebook page, which included outright denials that systemic racism exists. Seriously. Or the casual everyday comments, actions, and failures from nonprofit leaders who have allowed their BIPGM employees to suffer dehumanizing treatment without support until they are so exhausted and depleted that they resign. Or our marginalization of the equally urgent and necessary work of groups like Food Empowerment Project, Chili's on Wheels, and the Afro-Vegan Society, because we see food justice initiatives as not effective or impactful and therefore optional. Or our support for the prosecution of farm workers for animal cruelty, resulting from the oppressive and abusive systems in which these workers are themselves victimized. These racist systems will only be dismantled once white people acknowledge our complicity in maintaining them. When white people deny that they exist or think of anti-racist work as something that doesn't apply to us, we are letting our fellow BIPGM activists down. And through this, we're letting the animals down. In other words, we are failing to be as effective for animals as we could be, and we are failing to uphold a basic moral obligation either way. White animal activists, myself included, must remain uncomfortable enough to challenge our assumptions and to question how we are engaging with the world and whether our activism is supporting injustice against BIPGM. I know that I will need to actively rise to the occasion to challenge all systems of oppression, not just those that exploit non-human animals, for the remainder of my life. And any way I look at it, I am still that 16-year-old white girl who gets to feel safe, even while putting others in danger. But anti-racist efforts are not optional. As a white person, I carry a debt to buy PGM that can never truly be repaid. But that will not stop me from trying anyway, unrelentingly, and doing it more effectively. It is my job to take action. And until all white people see it as our job, injustice will prevail for people and animals alike. My name is Dana McFall, and the title of my essay is What I've Learned by Applying an Anti-Racist Framework to My Animal Advocacy. As I sat down to write this essay, Joe Biden had just been officially declared the president-elect of the United States. Instantly, within me, there were feelings of relief and hope, coupled with feelings of trepidation. While the Democratic candidate won the election, over 70 million people voted for the incumbent. In the wake of the Black Lives Matter uprising and amid the worsening global COVID-19 pandemic, I couldn't help but wonder, what does this election mean for the future? What does it mean for me? 
and other Black, Indigenous, and people of the global majority by PGM here in the U.S. and around the world? What does it mean for all the other species who inhabit this planet? I don't ask these questions lightly. The lives of so many are at risk. Not so long ago, after the 2016 election, I was rudely awakened out of an idealistic slumber to realize that this country is not necessarily moving inevitably toward justice. That is what I was raised to believe, though. Both of my parents are Black and grew up poor. But out of the gains made during the civil rights movement and their hard work, they were able to rise out of poverty and provide me with a path to college as part of the first generation in our family to receive a post-secondary education. They instilled in me a belief that while racism still exists in this country, if I work hard and do well in school, I'll be able to achieve a middle-class lifestyle and do better than they ever dreamed. Well into adulthood, I held that belief, but over the years, the reality of the rampant structural racism and anti-Blackness so deeply entrenched in every corner of this country kept hitting me square in the face. In 2020, the world erupted in reaction to the brutal murder of George Floyd. People from all backgrounds in the U.S. and worldwide were out in the streets standing up for Black lives. Some believe that launched a racial reckoning that was long overdue. I don't disagree, but I think that reckoning needs to go much deeper. It needs to go beyond holding up signs at protests, posting memes on social media in support of Black Lives Matter, or reading books like How to Be an Anti-Racist. The reckoning must go to the root of systemic manifestations of anti-Black racism, not only in our interpersonal relationships, but also in our cultural norms and our societal institutions. And one of our most important societal institutions, social justice movements, cannot be exempt from this racial reckoning. That includes the animal rights movement. Growing up caring about animals. I grew up as a Black girl in the United States. And for as long as I can remember, I have felt a visceral connection with non-human animals. Partly because they don't see me as my color. Like far too many Black children, I was socialized to believe that something was wrong with my Blackness. And something was wrong with me. I have dark brown skin, dark brown eyes, and Afro-textured hair. Girls and women who look like me are not celebrated, valued, or even respected in U.S. culture. I was taught that if you were Black with curly or wavy hair, you had, quote, good hair. 
which in contrast meant that girls with my hair type had, quote, bad hair. Curly or wavy hair was considered good because it was closer to the straighter flowing hair that white girls had, even if it was growing out of a black girl's head. I learned that black girls who have lighter skin and eyes were considered beautiful. And by default, a girl who looked like me was ugly. Lighter skin and eyes were considered beautiful because they were closer in color to that of white girls. They were closer in proximity to whiteness. I learned that black girls and women could be beaten, raped, and murdered, and little would be done about it. Being black and female meant I had no value. I can distinctly remember that at times I wished I were white. I thought that if I were white, I would be wanted, I would be loved, and I would be protected. The only time that I recall feeling completely wanted and loved by someone other than my immediate family was when I was with my companion animals. Growing up, I lived with animal companions, including a wonderful dog named Duke. When my family adopted him, we were told he was the runt of the litter. Right then, I wanted to bring him home. He was unwanted, like me, and I knew I would love him no matter what. Duke died when I was in high school. I was bonded to him, and I remember how much his death hurt me. After his death, I began to notice other animals around me more often, honing in on how they were being treated. When I was in high school, I remember being chosen to tour a medical facility because I was interested in pursuing a career in that field. As I walked around, I was horrified to see a sedated black cat hooked up to a bunch of tubes propped up in a display window. I don't remember the reason given to me for the awful situation the cat was in, but I recall being told that the cat would be euthanized once they were done with him. I was torn apart by that callous loss of life. Around the same time, I witnessed a horrific incident of a dog being killed near my home. One afternoon, I noticed two beagles trying to cross a busy four-lane street. As I watched, one of the two beagles was struck by a car, then another car, and another car. I can still hear the yelping of the dog as she lay immobilized. After several torturous moments, the yelping stopped. The dog was dead. Those two terrible moments changed the trajectory of my life forever. I witnessed numerous people willfully ignore even inflict tremendous pain and suffering on animals in much the same way that many people have deliberately ignored, denied, and perpetrated violence upon Black bodies. 
That's when I knew I wanted to use my voice to fight for non-human animals and stop their suffering. What I didn't realize, however, was that I was missing a genuine understanding of how the oppression of Black people and that of non-human animals were connected by an ideology that devalued us both. Advocating on behalf of animals as a Black woman. Shortly after I finished law school, I started advocating on behalf of women of color who were physically and emotionally abused by their intimate partners. It was during this time that I began to take a deep dive into the world of animal rights, and I learned what happened to animals behind closed doors. I was shaken by the violence that permeates both the lives of Black people and of animals. I learned how animals are forced to perform in circuses using painful bullhooks or are held captive in deplorable conditions at roadside zoos. I learned how billions of animals are unnecessarily subjected to painful experiments or are forced to endure unimaginable suffering inside factory farms only to be cruelly slaughtered often while fully conscious. So I became vegetarian and later vegan, joined local animal rights protests and attended national conferences. I became a prosecutor to help rescue animals from abusive situations and hold flagrant animal abusers accountable for their cruelty. I even learned that the cycle of violence against many survivors of domestic violence includes threats from the abuser to harm their companion animals as a way to exert control or dominance. But despite what I saw as clear connections between my human and animal rights advocacy, I found that I was at a crossroads. Whenever I brought up animal rights issues, among human and civil rights advocates as part of an overall social justice agenda, my concerns were met with skepticism. Yet, within the animal rights movement, I often experienced both overt and covert racism, from disparaging comments about my skin color to not-so-subtle microaggressions from the heads of animal protection organizations. One implied I hadn't done enough to take the lead on an advocacy campaign, and another falsely accused me of stealing. While I had wanted to devote my career to animal advocacy, I saw few other Black folks involved with local or national animal rights organizations. And based on my own experiences, I had found the movement to be hostile to Black people. For years, I a highly qualified individual with both a master's degree and a law degree, had tried to obtain full-time work in the animal protection movement. Suffice it to say, I was unsuccessful. The one time I was hired to work in an animal protection organization, I was disrespected and treated like a second-class citizen 
by the other staff and volunteers, and even the board, all of whom were white. None of them offered me support to ensure I could be effective in my new position. Consequently, I lasted only six months. And compensation for my other part-time work in animal advocacy was virtually impossible to come by. Even after being a longtime volunteer with several organizations, my request to seek funding so I could continue my work without having to hold down another full-time job were dismissed out of hand by white leaders, even while they asked me to stay on as a volunteer. Looking back, this doesn't surprise me because Black women's labor is not valued in a white supremacist society, and the animal rights movement is part of this society. Ultimately, I left the movement, but I have never lost my passion for advocating on behalf of animals. Years later, after a much-needed pause to rest, recover, and reflect, I found a home in the field of humane education. Learning to educate for animal liberation with an anti-racist lens. Through my humane education work, I have begun to learn what it means to advocate for non-human animals as a Black woman. Over the past 10 years, I have studied and taught comprehensive humane education, which examines the interconnected systems of oppression at play in human rights, animal protection, and environmental ethics. It fosters ways of thinking that can lead to just, humane, and sustainable systems that benefit people, animals, and the environment. More recently, I have learned to bring an anti-racist and intersectional lens to humane education. What I've learned from the writings of vegans of the global majority, such as Ath and Silco, is that not only are racism and speciesism interconnected, but white supremacy is the underlying ideology that legitimizes both the centuries-long violence inflicted upon Black people and the daily profound suffering forced upon non-human animals. I've come to understand my own oppression, the oppression of Black people, in particular of Black women, as rooted in the subjugation of everyone who is not the idealized European white male. I have found my place from which to fight for myself, other marginalized peoples, and animals. I have redefined myself as an anti-racist humane educator. I have dedicated myself to educating my students and others about white supremacist ideology and how it condemns both Black people and animals. Understanding white supremacy. When I talk about white supremacy, I'm referring to the ideology that white people and their ideas, thoughts, beliefs, and actions are superior to those of BIPGM and the societal assumptions which, according to Dismantling Racism Works, assign value, morality, 
goodness and humanity to the white group while casting people and communities of the global majority as worthless, literally worthless, immoral, bad, inhuman, and undeserving, unquote. Essentially, what white supremacy does is create a hierarchy based on race and skin color. And central to white supremacy is the notion that Black people are at the bottom of the racial hierarchy. This is anti-Blackness. So many of the worst effects of racism, namely violence, have been inflicted upon Black people with impunity. As described by Kihana Mayara Ross in the New York Times opinion piece, call it what it is, anti-Blackness, anti-Blackness is, quote, more than just racism against Black people. Anti-Blackness describes the inability to recognize Black humanity. It captures the reality that the kind of violence that saturates Black life It's gratuitous and unrelenting. The brutalization inflicted upon Black bodies under white supremacy is compounded for Black women. Ijoma Aluo, the author of So You Want to Talk About Race, reasons that systems of different oppressions interact with and feed off of each other. Racism will strengthen gender oppression against Black women, as Aluo further explains, quote, a Black woman is not poor simply because she's a woman and the patriarchy undervalues the role of women. She is also poor because her skin color and hair texture labels her as unprofessional, unreliable, volatile, unskilled, and unintelligent. She is poor because society sees her as someone from whom labor is to be taken, not compensated. She is also poor because she is more likely to be the sole caregiver of children in a system that locks away Black men, unquote. At the core of white supremacy is the animal. While reading Sisters Aff and Silco's book, Aphorism, I began to understand the role white supremacy plays in non-human animals' subjugation. In her Afropunk essay, Three Ways Black Veganism Challenges White Supremacy Unlike Conventional Veganism, Erin White summarizes Afroism's central thesis. White supremacy creates a human-animal binary in which the conception of humanity and human is considered to be in opposition to animal. At the same time, this dichotomy equates the idealized human with whiteness. This means that both human and animal are racialized terms. The social use of the term animal is called animality. The Coe sisters describe animality as a Eurocentric construct that has contributed, quote, to the oppression of any group that deviates from the white supremacist ideal of being, white homo sapiens, unquote, both human and non-human. Here is an excerpt from Afroism that particularly spoke to me. White 
is not just the superior race. It is also the superior mode of being. Residing at the top of the racial hierarchy is the white human, where species and race coincide to create the master being. Resting at the bottom as the abject opposite of the human, of whiteness, is the necessarily nebulous notion of the animal. As stated by White, the codes show that under white supremacy, Black people are animalized as an extension of the racialized nature of both human and animal categories, as a means to exploit, violate, and eliminate us. Similarly, in his March 4th 2017 YouTube video, Exploring Connections Between Black Liberation and Animal Liberation, activist Christopher Sebastian McJudders argues that, quote, it is actually a product of white supremacy that Black people have been set up as animals. McJudders explains that the concept of human has been set up to mean white, specifically white males, who are cisgender, heterosexual, and wealthy, and that anyone who does not fall into the category human is somehow lesser. This includes, quote, women, women of color, anybody of the global majority, everybody who does not have a lot of money, and other species communities." Unquote. According to McJudders, it is the entire structure of imperialist, white supremacist, cisgender, heteropatriarchal capitalism, quote, upon which animal exploitation rests, unquote. The need to uproot the human-animal divide. It is this new expanded construction of white supremacy, one which centers the human-animal dichotomy as the basis for the racial hierarchy established under white supremacy culture that has allowed me to begin to articulate what I feel I've known my whole life, that my liberation and that of Black people as a whole are tied to the liberation of non-human animals. To fight for both the liberation of Black people and the liberation of non-human animals, I need to work to uproot the human-animal divide that is the essence of white supremacist ideology. In aphorism, Af and Sil Co talk about how Black folks, in particular, can effectively challenge racism and white supremacy by rejecting the human-animal divide. Quote, it is clear to most Black people that animality is not exhausted by reference to non-human animals, but that we share in it as well by virtue of our perceived and felt less than status, but by talking about our feeling of ontological lack from the perspective of 
the animal within. We can connect race to animality to reflect the true nature of anti-Black racism and or oppression. The animal is not separate from our Blackness. It is a part of it, unquote. This means that we as Black people should not only reject the inferiority conferred upon us, but we should equally reject the notion that non-human animals are less than humans in any morally relevant way. And we should live our lives in a manner that affirms this mindset in acknowledging that animals, too, are among the many beings who are condemned by the current system of racial hierarchy, we are compelled to act in ways that upend the entirety of the white supremacist narrative. Becoming an anti-racist humane educator. So how does what I've learned impact my work as a humane educator. It means teaching from an understanding of white supremacist thinking and a commitment to disrupt and dismantle white supremacy in all its manifestations. And it means imagining a world outside of white supremacist logic, a world where everything I know is not defined by whiteness. What would it look like to imagine a world where I'm not defined by the racial and gender constructs imposed upon me, where people racialized as white are no longer invested in whiteness, where the lives of non-human animals are no longer circumscribed within the social construct animal, where huge swaths of our planet are not considered disposable, along with the people and wildlife who inhabit them. These are the questions that guide my work as an anti-racist humane educator. I ask these questions because I know, as a Black woman, my fate and the fate of non-human animals are bound up together. My path forward toward Black liberation and animal liberation. For me, the path forward as I fight for the liberation of Black and other marginalized communities and the liberation of animals is to expand and deepen my thinking about white supremacy. I intend to shine a spotlight on the concept of whiteness that plagues both Black bodies and the bodies of non-human animals. I hope my work will enable me to connect with other social justice educators and engage in dialogues about incorporating non-human animals into anti-racism and anti-bias education as a necessary component in undermining white supremacist logic. This is not a foregone conclusion. Social justice education tends to highlight injustices that impact humans with little or no attention given to other species. 
I am concerned that the integration of animal injustices could prove difficult without a more inclusive understanding of the ideological roots of white supremacy. Beyond that, I hope to inspire humane educators who tend to be overwhelmingly white to center marginalized populations, especially black people, in their education work and employ strategies to dismantle anti-black racism in their lives, all as an extension of their animal advocacy. As is true for many white people, white humane educators can find it challenging to talk about racism, particularly when they are asked to explore their own complicity with white supremacy. Dr. Bettina Love, author of We Want to Do More Than Survive, asserts that in order to stand up for Black and Brown children, white educators must want to address how white people, including white teachers, contribute to structural racism and join in the fight for justice across movements, from education justice to food justice to labor justice. Based on my ongoing work, I am gratified that some humane educators have engaged in the self-examination needed to uproot anti-Black racism within themselves and in their communities. And I believe that the steps that humane educators and other advocates take to dismantle anti-Blackness ultimately benefit non-human animals too. I've come full circle to embrace that young Black girl who felt an innate connection with her companion animals. In those moments, in the face of being socialized to disconnect myself from loving other species and from loving myself, I was engaging in liberatory thinking that belied the white supremacist colonial ethic that dominates U.S. society and through its imperialist undertakings, much of the world. This liberatory thinking has become fully awakened in me and is now a firm part of who I am. The experience has been truly transformative. And now that I've connected with something so deep within myself, I can give voice to it here in this essay, in my humane education work and in other aspects of my life. I recognize that my true home has been within me all along. Hi, I'm Brooke Haggerty. The title of my essay is Using Research and Data to Create an Inclusive Animal Rights Movement. The conference room was packed with passionate animal advocates humming with conversation. Did you catch the film screening last night? What did you think of the keynote? With a long weekend behind me and a vegan cupcake in hand, I found a seat for the concluding plenary. As the speakers took their places and the room quieted down, I took notice of my surroundings, nodding and smiling at my colleagues and peers, each of us there because of our fierce dedication to ending the suffering of animals. 
leaders from prominent organizations across the country had come together, united in that shared commitment to animal protection. I was proud to be one of them. But as my eyes swept the conference room, the excitement and motivation from the last few days drained out of me. A commitment to the cause wasn't the only thing we all had in common. Staggeringly, and with few exceptions, I realized that most of the people in the room were white. Eventually, someone pointed this out, but no one knew what to do about it. Do the work. I kept hearing this phrase as I began educating myself on the importance of racial equity in the workplace. Unsure of what it meant and how to contribute to the change I wanted to see, I turned to my usual source of clarity in times of uncertainty, research and data. As a bookworm who studied human behavior, I've always had an inclination toward the analytical. My inherent curiosity, always asking why, has guided me toward using research as a basis for understanding. This is what led me to join Faunalytics, a nonprofit that provides research to support effective animal advocacy. When my advocacy is data-driven, I feel confident knowing that I'm using my time and resources effectively. Deep diving into a career around research has taught me many things about animal advocacy, and I was immediately transfixed by what I was learning. Research tells us that animal advocates are very similar demographically. The North American mainstream movement and its sympathizers are disproportionately female, white, and middle class. As one example, in a survey of 13 animal welfare organizations, with a combined total of 1,584 employees, 62% had no Black employees. Not only is animal protection made up of a white majority, but we in turn project this image back to the public through advocacy materials and media. As I evolved in my animal advocacy, these facts kept rattling around in my head. The question lingered, what should we do with this information? Perhaps this is where you are in your journey. You know the animal rights sector is dominated by white advocates, and you know that white advocates' efforts to create an inclusive environment haven't been enough. Perhaps, like me, you've found this similar to the experience of discovering the atrocities of factory farming. Once you know, it's hard to go back. So you keep learning, determined to make it better. Building foundational knowledge. After diving into as much research as I could find on inequity in our movement, I reflected on my own experiences in animal advocacy. Conferences packed with predominantly white advocates were only the tip of the iceberg, and I realized just how much was at stake because of this. How could advocates reach our goal of ending animal suffering when only one point of view, that of white folks, dominated our efforts toward this goal? Unsure of what I needed to learn, and unlearn, I went back to the drawing board for some core definitions. Prejudice is the prejudgment about another person based on the groups to which that person belongs, typically negative and based on unsupported generalizations. Action that is based on prejudice is discrimination. And racial prejudice plus power equals racism, the structure in which collective prejudice toward a group of people based on race or ethnicity is backed by the power of legal and institutional authority that sustains systems of oppression. This is why reverse racism is a myth. Marginalized groups do not wield institutional power that upholds systematic racism. As Dr. Robin D'Angelo writes in White Fragility, why it's so hard for white people to talk about racism, racism is often reduced to simple, isolated, and extreme acts of prejudice. When prejudice and discrimination are confused with racism, a fervent good-bad binary is established. 
racist versus not racist, making it effectively impossible for the average white person to understand, much less interrupt, racism. This is one reason why it's so difficult to understand the extent to which we live and operate in a white supremacy culture. White supremacy culture? Wait a second, you're thinking. I don't think I'm a racist, but I know I'm not a white supremacist. This was a tough one for me too. Let's set aside clan images and think of white supremacy culture as an unnamed system in which cultural norms and structures held in place by systems of power encourage and reinforce white privilege. In other words, whites control the dominant narratives, wealth, government, military, education, media, entertainment, in our society. Sadly, this is also true within the North American and European animal protection movements. As decolonial theorist and author AFCO recently explained, some of the most popular theorists, filmmakers, writers, and thinkers in the mainstream animal rights movement are white people. White people run some of the largest and most influential animal rights and vegan organizations. They also get the most funding in this movement. Unsurprisingly, this is the case for the nonprofit sector as a whole. One study found that the revenues of Black-led organizations are 24% smaller than the revenues of their white-led counterparts. As a white executive and fundraiser, I read this and felt a pit in my stomach as my privilege stared back at me, a partner in my success. Knowing that white supremacy culture exists in our society and in our sector, and that the mainstream movement's association with whiteness is a major deterrent to Black, Indigenous, and people of the global majority, or by PGM, white animal advocates have an obligation to make the animal protection community an equitable space. This is our obligation not because the data tell us that doing so will increase our impact, but because our commitment to fighting oppression should not be limited to non-human animals. And as someone who wields power, this is my responsibility too. So what does it mean to create an equitable space? Equity is the concept of treating everyone fairly by acknowledging and addressing everyone's unique situation and systematic barriers. This is very different from equality, where everyone is treated the same and has access to the same opportunities. For example, if everyone has access to a bicycle for transportation, that is equal. However, this does not consider the needs of those who live on a busy street with heavy vehicle traffic and is therefore not equitable. Racial inequity exists in our movement both internally, within organizations, and externally, via public-facing advocacy. Racial inequity in animal protection. Wading through definitions and data kindled my commitment to keep learning. As I continued my research, three clear examples of racial inequity in animal advocacy emerged. Number one, implicit bias and white favoritism in the workplace, including decision-making that ignores or excludes voices of BIPGM. Roadblocks to an inclusive movement often emerge in hiring practices and organizational culture, from job ad language to unnecessary qualification requirements to cultural fit. There are a myriad of ways in which our biases however unintentional, prohibit us from attracting and then advancing talent in our sector. A meta-analysis found that whites receive, on average, 36% more callbacks than African-Americans and 24% more callbacks than Latinos. Roughly 3 in 10 Native Americans and Latinx job seekers say they have been personally discriminated against in terms of pay, promotions, or when applying for jobs. In turn, 
Without diverse representation among leadership, people of color are 24% less likely than straight white men to win support for their ideas, according to Harvard Business Review. Diversity without inclusion can lead to tokenism, which further promotes inequity. Number two, lack of accessible and affordable vegan options in advocacy materials and in communities. In addition to the lack of diverse representation in advocacy materials, we have not fully recognized and addressed food disparities among those we are trying to persuade. For many, the lack of access, monetarily or otherwise, to vegan options makes the content and outreach materials unrelatable and unrealistic. Convenient grocery stores and healthy food options, such as fruit and vegetables, are less abundant in black and brown communities, which tend to be oversaturated with fast food restaurants and inexpensive processed foods. This issue is sometimes referred to as food apartheid or dietary racism. In a recent study of the stigmas that vegans of color face, a Latinx participant explained that when organizations distribute pamphlets that advertise expensive vegan products, they are marketing a privileged version of veganism. If our content and rhetoric ignore this imbalance of accessibility, we cannot expect everyone to feel welcome in the mainstream movement or be receptive to vegan messaging. Number three, advocacy that excludes the mistreatment of marginalized groups or demonizes other cultures. According to the Vegan Food Justice Organization Food Empowerment Project, slaughterhouse workers are predominantly black and brown people living in low-income communities. But despite the psychological and physical trauma workers experience, they are often absent or vilified in advocacy campaigns. One examination of the exploitation in slaughterhouses argued that when organizations frame the injustices present in the animal agriculture industry, as affecting only non-human animals, employees are presented as the culprit of these injustices rather than the industry itself. Similarly harmful are white-led campaigns that demonize specific cultures for their practices, such as the dog meat trade, instead of recognizing that all cultures take part in the exploitation of animals. For advocates working on campaigns to ban wet markets, I suggest Encompass's blog entry on applying racial equity framework to farmed animal advocacy and phonolytic study on zoonoses and the public's understanding of the pandemic's origins. These inequities come at a cost. This is all quite a bit to take in for any white animal advocate. Most of us became involved in this line of work because we're committed to ending the suffering of billions of animals. Finding out that we might be addressing one oppression while ignoring another is hard to reckon with. This is what makes me even more determined to extend my worldview and broaden my activism. Without racial equity, animal rights cannot effectively move forward. Research indicates that the lack of diversity in our movement may be hindering our ability to make a difference for animals. In the essay, How Diversity Makes Us Smarter, Dr. Katherine Phillips examined years of research and found that diversity enhances creativity. It encourages the search for novel information and perspectives, leading to better decision-making and problem-solving. Diverse groups engage in more careful information processing, and McKinsey and Company findings indicate that diverse companies are better positioned to improve their client relations and employee satisfaction. One study of animal activist burnout identified racism as a key contributor to burnout. As activists of color reported being unsatisfied with the diversity of our movement and the apparent uninterest in remedying this among white activists. 
Faunalytics published a study that examined why some animal advocates leave the movement while others stay engaged long-term. Factors included burnout, traumatic stress, discrimination and harassment, pay and benefits, and lack of opportunities for training and advancement. We found that many of these experiences were affected, usually negatively, by being a member of a minoritized group. Creating an equitable and inclusive space. If we want to achieve a greater impact for animals by exploring and supporting the new ideas, relationships, and resources that come with an equitable and inclusive movement, we have to do the work. Here are a few ideas to get white animal advocates started. Number one, listen to and support advocates of color, especially those who are black. Amplify their voices, listen to their feedback, apply their ideas, and credit and donate to their work. Number two, always continue learning. From blogs to books to podcasts, there is a fountain of knowledge that will help bolster your advocacy on a personal level. I've benefited greatly from Encompass's resource guide and Dismantle Collective's resource list. Learning also includes being receptive to correction and change. Racism and inequity are challenging and uncomfortable topics for most, but we cannot grow until we leave our comfort zones. Number three, Develop racial equity literacy among your colleagues. Whether you influence up or set policy directly, every white animal advocate can share information and generate discussion. I recommend first establishing a shared vocabulary to support effective communication. This will also help you gauge where your colleagues are at in their understanding of racial equity so that you can meet them there. Consider starting a weekly reading and discussion session or a monthly white affinity group to help nourish and promote conversation. Explore questions such as, what are examples of racial inequity in our cause area? In our organization? What steps can our organization take to promote equity internally and beyond? At Faunalytics, we choose a theme to discuss every other week, such as implicit bias or tokenism, and use readings as our guide. And then, most importantly, we create actionable steps from every discussion. Number four, make organizational changes. Transform your SMART goals, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and timely, into SMART-T goals to include inclusion and equity. Audit your advocacy materials, content, and communications through a racial lens. Hire people of color for leadership roles and other skilled positions. Use global diversity, equity, and inclusion benchmarks to guide your organization from awareness of the value of racial equity to systematically implementing and demonstrating best practices. Board members should engage in this work and not leave it to staff only. Funders should make racial equity a priority in grant making. Number five. Be actively anti-racist, not passively non-racist. Be thoughtful with language because good intentions cannot override negative impact. As white animal advocates, we have a responsibility to unapologetically name racism and use our power and privilege to support ostracized advocates. Dismantling inequity in our movement is both an individual and a collective process that will require ongoing conversations and commitment to change. The conference I attended that opened my eyes to these issues was years ago now. 
Since that pivotal moment, I have found myself digging deeper and deeper into my own role in creating a more equitable animal rights movement. I have fallen short in the past. I have said the wrong things, or I've said the right things the wrong way, or I've said nothing when almost anything would have been better than staying silent. I've made mostly white hires, and I've voted in favor of motions that my colleagues of color never got behind. I've donated to organizations without questioning whether they were engaging in equitable practices. I've benefited from the color of my skin time and time and time again, ignorant of the role my privilege played. How can I do better? How do we move from white guilt to accountability? I've found that this work is an ongoing process, something we must practice continuously. With every decision I make, I have the chance to learn and improve, to listen and change. Every day is a new opportunity to strengthen my advocacy and my humanity. I know I'm not alone. As advocates who oppose the exploitation of billions of non-human animals, we are actively confronting systems of oppression that cause so much suffering. More and more, I see my fellow white advocates speaking up about these issues at conferences, attending trainings, and holding one another accountable. I see priorities reshaping and policies changing. I see the passion in the movement, the fire in our eyes that ignites when we bear witness to injustice. I know that fire is in your eyes. It's in mine too. Let's do the work together and fuel it. This concludes the third episode of the four-part audio series of Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation. This book is a collaboration between Lantern Publishing and Media, Encompass, Sentient Media, and Our Hen House. Stay tuned next week for the final episode, which focuses on leading. Throughout the month of October 2021, every Thursday, we will be publishing a new episode of this four-part series, in addition to our regularly scheduled weekly Our Hen House podcast and our monthly Animal Law podcast. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Jasmine Singer, the editor of this anthology, the author of The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan, and the author of the memoir, Always Too Much and Never Enough. I'm also the co-host of the award-winning Our Hen House podcast, an editor and columnist at Veg News Magazine, the VP of Editorial at Kinder Beauty, and a longtime animal activist and public speaker. I am so thrilled to have brought this audio series to you through Our Hen House. We truly, deeply appreciate everyone who participated in this project and everyone who helped to make this audio series happen. Special thanks to the essay authors featured on this episode for taking the time to record with us, to Amy Lubert for her help in coordinating it, to Jen Riley for her work in producing this series, to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for editing, and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Jocelyn Martinez and Marianne Sullivan of Our Hen House for their support and to our flock for their cheerleading. Our Hen House is a 501c3 nonprofit. If you believe in the power of independent media and you want to change the world for animals, we hope you will consider supporting our efforts and joining the flock, which you can do at ourhenhouse.org. Many benefits come with joining the Our Hen House flock, including live monthly virtual get-togethers to discuss activism and have more intimate conversations with recent podcast guests, weekly bonus content just for you, exclusive access to the Our Hen House Facebook group, 
and the opportunity to meet with me one-on-one to discuss your change-making endeavors. If you're not already familiar with Our Hen House, tune into our podcasts. You can find the Our Hen House podcast and the Animal Law podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to check us out on social media or visit us at ourhenhouse.org. Talk to you next week.